the American dream's all about financial freedom, but everybody who actually gets there, they find out that this is the wrong F. People mm -hmm. need fulfillment. Hey, investor. Welcome back to another episode of Passive Income Adventures, where we're talking to Jerome Myers today. And Jerome is one of those people that I have admired from afar on social media for quite a while because he's just doing things a little bit differently. He's building partnerships that are about win-wins for people. He's putting out a message that diversity is really foundational to what it is that we do because drawing on that different experience, different background, different upbringings. When everybody comes together in a room, we're going to be stronger than we were alone. And as a woman in investing, I, I definitely feel that call. And so it's a real honor for me to be talking to Jerome today. He just knows what he wants. He knows where he is. He knows what he's about. And as we talk about in this episode, it's not always about having the least bumpy way to get there, but having a really clear vision of where you're going can help you figure out how to get there. And he has a great um, analogy towards the end where he's talking about how just get started. He said, if you're in California and, and you want to drive to the other coast, you just get in the car and you just start driving and you don't need an exact address because you're learning more as you go. And so having that vision of where you want to be somewhere, the city in California, you don't have to have it exactly dialed in when you get in the car and start driving. So that really resonated with me. And I think that just being able to be brave and take action is really what this episode is all about. And then he gives just a great realistic spin on what it, this journey actually looks like. We keep it real on this show and Jerome definitely delivers there. So enjoy the episode. Be sure to reach out to Jerome afterwards. We got his contact information in there and, and get ready to learn from someone who is doing it, not just talking about it. We got Jerome Myers here. Thanks for coming, Jerome. Where are you calling in from today? I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. So good to be with you, Emma. Yeah, good to be with you too. I want you to just jump in and introduce yourself real quick, and then we will talk about your journey and where you started, where you are now, and the most fun part at the end, like where you're headed. So just tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, at the highest level, I'm corporate America dropout. I had the good fortune of building a $20 million division for a Fortune 550 company. And my reward for that was laying half my team off. And a lot of people look at me like, what do you mean $20 million business? And what does that actually mean, Jerome? I was like, okay, well, I was employee number two. I started on January 13th of 2015. By the end of September, I had 175 people on my team. End of the year, $20 million in revenue, 30% profit margins, to put things in perspective. I get a phone call on December 24th at 4.55, and it goes something like this. Hey, Jerome, you and I have been talking. We've been going back and forth but I'm calling to let you know that we're going to lay half the team off. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. He said, this wasn't meant to be a discussion or a debate or a negotiation. That's what we're going to do. And I said, yeah, I hear you, but because I'm stubborn, right? And he's like, no, you don't get it. I'm calling to inform you of a decision. And, of course, I didn't get it, so I kept talking. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go spend the rest of the year with my family. I'll talk to you in the new year. And so I didn't sleep. I didn't eat through the holidays and I was trying to figure out how can we make the process as objective as possible. I, I hate favoritism. I hate when people are just kind of doing things in the right way and there's all these optics and stuff. So I wanted to figure out how we could actually see what production was and who made a big difference on the team and so on and so forth. So we put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Eventually I started gaining weight back because I started eating again. 
and we make another run, similar results. But towards the end of the year, I realized that the same thing was going to happen again. So I bowed out of corporate, moved into real estate full time. It was a dream that I had as a sophomore in college. Me and my buddy Duran were sitting on the stoop of our apartment building. I was paying three ninety five in an apartment upstairs. He was doing the same thing downstairs, and we both had two roommates. When we did the math, the person who owned the complex was doing about $700,000 a year, but we never saw him or talked to him. He had third-party property management in place, and it was just like, wow, you can make that much money. And we are first-generation, go-to-college students, and so for us, making $70,000 a year sounded like a whole lot of money, not to mention the thought that he was making that much and there was no time invested that we could see. And so I was like, I want to go do that. And so I take my 54-page business plan with the deal that I found on LoopNet to a bank and say, hey, yeah, I want to buy this. And don't you want to give me a million dollars? And they looked at me and they said, why would we give you a million dollars? I said, well, I got an MBA and I'm a licensed engineer and I just finished running a $20 million P&L. Of course you want to give me a million dollars so that I can buy this building and do the same thing because I get big results. He said, yeah, but what experience do you have doing this? And I said, I got nothing. And he said, oh, okay, well, we're not going to give you any money. I said, okay, you guys are idiots. I'm going to go to the next bank. And so Emma, I told you I was stubborn when I was talking about the guy that I reported to, right? And so I did that nine more times, and they all told me the same thing. I was like, oh, well, maybe I don't understand something about this. And there's no education program I went through. In fact, I'm a proud graduate of YouTube University. When it did all the things, right? And I realized that I wasn't going to get a loan. So I did what every real estate investor does. I saw HGTV and I saw people were fixing and flipping. I was like, well, if they can do it on TV, I can do it in real life. And in addition to that, I've been lending money privately to fix and flippers when I was mm -hmm. working my job because I was like, let's get some private money, some hard money because mm -hmm. you can charge a whole lot of interest. And anyway, that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out either because we tell the real stories here, right? And yeah. so I fix a flip and I'm sitting on the stoop of the biggest rehab I had done to that point. And when I say the biggest rehab, it was a 1920s build, $75,000 rehab, right? We're doing all the systems, mechanical, electrical, HV or plumbing, everything's new. And I'm sitting on his porch and the guy pulls up in a white Dodge Ram and he says, hey, bud. We're getting ready to do a house down the street. I'd love to check out your finishes. And so I was like, yeah, come on, man. And so I show him. He's like, ooh, that French door is period correct. And you got the gooseneck sink in the island. And look at that granite. It's not level one. It's like level five. And you made a master suite in this really old house. And he's like, this is awesome. I was like, thank you. He was getting ready to walk out the front door. And he says, hey, do you know anything about that building behind the Chimbo Mart? I said, the Chimbo Mart? The 23-unit apartment building? He said, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I tried to buy it four or five months ago. He said, well, I'm getting ready to make an offer on it. He said, oh, you're the guy I've been looking for. The people at the bank said I need somebody that had experience. And there's <laughs> no way that you're going to make an offer on a building like that if you don't have any experience. You're the guy I've been looking for. You're the only person that I know that owns any apartments. And he said, yeah, we own a little bit. And I said, well, don't leave me out. He kind of looked at me and he said, what are you going to bring to the table? I said, I don't know. We'll figure that out. But the bank said I need a guy with experience, so don't leave me out. And he said, yeah, I, I hear you, but what are you going to bring to the table? I said, look, man, you're the only person I know that owns apartments. You're going to 
buy the deal that I tried to buy by myself, but the banks wouldn't lend me money because I didn't have any experience. Don't leave me out of the deal. We'll figure the rest out. And so he turned red, got frustrated, shook his head, turned around, walked out, down through the yard, hopped in his truck, drove off. Now, this was a Wednesday. I was like, all right, he's going to get on a contract today. He'll call me tomorrow, and we'll be off to go buy my apartment building because now I found my experience partner. And the phone didn't ring him. It didn't ring on Friday either. I was like, okay, well, maybe he'll just call me on Monday. They needed to work through things over the weekend. But Monday is surely going to be the day. Nothing on Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday. I was like, oh, maybe I should call the guy. Emma, I didn't know his name. Emma, I didn't know what property he was working on down the street. I certainly didn't have his phone number. And so I was like, I blew it. I didn't explain to him what my credentials were or how much money I could invest in a deal. I didn't get the contact information so I could follow up with him. And it was me hoping that maybe he would drive down the street one day and I could talk to him. So weekend comes and goes, and then I get a call on Monday from a guy who used to lend money to me. He said, hey, man, I got the opportunity to be a general contractor on that project that you told me about back in January. He said, I told them that I was only willing to do it if you were involved in the project. Oh, nice. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. What happens next? He's like, there's a meeting tomorrow at nine. I said, like, send me the dress in there. And so through that process, I ended up being the asset manager for that deal. That got me in the paper. Then the banks that I went to trying to buy the deal said, oh, well, let us know what you're gonna do on a refi for that deal. Do you have any other properties in your port or your pipeline? I was like, what's a pipeline? Pipeline carries gas and oil. What's a pipe? Why would I have anything in my pipeline? And then I realized, oh, they were talking about other projects and kind of learned as I went, right? And so I went to YouTube University and then I decided that I would go to Podcast State. And I was listening to 40 hours of content every week. It's just like, oh, I'm going to pound all these podcasts. And I'm going to know all the stuff. And then I flew down to somebody's project and they were doing what we were doing, but they were doing it with a project that was like, I don't know, 150 units. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, if they can do that for that, then 23 is going to be easy. And so we do the project. We have all kinds of mistakes, hiccups. But we buy it for 1.3, and I think we sold it for like $4 million two year, a, a year ago. And I was like, oh, man, this, this is pretty cool. Like, we can double people's money. And so I had some partners in a deal, and I tucked them the checks, and they were like, you doubled my money. And I was like, yeah, we doubled your money. It's like, okay, let's do it again. And so we bought other things along the way, but those are, that was the first deal that we exited. We exited another one this year, and we did better than the first one. And so we continue to hold properties, but we continue to sell those because we believe that you should flip the first few properties so that you have more capital to invest in mm-hmm. higher quality and higher cash flow in deals. But I yeah. think you do the hard stuff in the beginning so that you can get a higher percent return. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that a lot of people, when you're listening to somebody who's really experienced, they're giving you very different advice than what they actually did to get started. So people are like, oh, go for the 100 units, 200 units, go for like class B or nicer class C stuff. Make sure your neighbors, all this stuff. And people who take courses, especially paid courses, and they respect their teachers are often not doing deals because they're trying to do like the perfect deal like the teacher is doing. And uh, what I think maybe what you and I have in common, husband kept getting laid off. We lost our faith that 
that this W-2 stream of income was reliable because you get laid off more than once and suddenly you realize this is risky. This one stream of income is very risky. But then we decided to go into real estate. Everybody's telling us how risky it is, and especially because we're taking on kind of ugly properties that take a lot of hands-on work. And the most inexperienced people are usually the ones taking on the heaviest lift because nobody else wants them. But that's sometimes how you have to get started. So I don't know. Tell me more about that because people... People make fun of my first properties. They're ugly and they're in bad shape and they're people are like, what are you doing? And so I don't know. What do you, what are your thoughts on getting started that way? So I think in general, you're going to do the hardest deals in the beginning because those are the ones you can get access to. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for something that's brokered, you're probably going to end up overpaying it, especially in this environment. And it's going to be hard to get the right amount of debt. And there's a lot of struggles and challenges that go with it. But I love your point. Because if you look at all of the big time educators, they did exactly what I just told you. They went and bought a property that was between 10 and 35 units. That was mm -hmm. their first deal. They got that deal done. They might've bought some others while they still held that deal, but they always broke in with something that's between 10 and 35 units. And they don't talk about it because the acquisition fee isn't big enough to cover the program that they're selling. And that's okay, yeah. right? At the end of the day, they've got to show you that there's big money and so that the investment seems really small. And I get all that. And to be honest, it's a whole lot less to pay for those programs to learn a skill that's going to potentially allow you to create wealth and income for your family when you compare it against most college degrees today. So True. I, I get all that. And I'm actually pretty comfortable with it. The thing that I struggle with, though, is if I'm competing with the teacher for a deal and they've done 20 projects and I've done none, I'm not going to win, right? The broker's just not ever going to recommend me. And so then that leads me to, well, I got to get direct to seller. So if you're competing with every other graduate of a syndication program in the country for the hundred unit deals in the most desirable markets, you're probably going to have a lot of competition and the person who wins the deal is probably the loser because they paid more than everybody else paid, right? For pain. My goal was to find a space in a place where there aren't a whole lot of people competing, own that space, and just get really good at it, right? Yeah. If you are a specialist at pretty much anything, you can make a lot of money because you know how to buy it. And I think that's probably the most important piece. It doesn't matter how difficult the deal is as long as you buy it at the right price because money for the most part outside of location money fixes all the problems tenants are hard on the building rehab it you gotta evict people okay that just takes money you have downtime because you're taking longer to renovate it it's just money right as long as you can feed the alligator until you can turn it into the goose you're okay and i I think so many people are underwriting and they say they're being conservative, but they're not. And that's putting out no. a space where they're in trouble. And you're seeing so many people. And I was early. I was thinking it would have happened a year ago where the people who bought things at a high price were going to get slaughtered. But you're seeing people run out of money now. And it's not starters, right? It is people who know what they're doing. And it's... It took longer, and again, in real estate, if you have enough money, you just wait it out. But for some people, they just run out of money. There's been deals mm -hmm. where I've had to write the check for the mortgage. There's been deals where I had 
And in fact, that first deal, I'm so glad that the bank didn't lend to me by myself because I underestimated a rehab budget. And that budget was big enough where I would have went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I would have bankrupted myself if that was me in the deal by myself. But I had partners, and so we were able to figure that out. But I don't think people actually understand the risk that they're taking. And I don't ever recommend anybody go to and graduate from YouTube University. I don't think podcast state is the right answer, mainly because there's gaps, right? It's like, oh, I heard this over here and I heard that over there. And then I heard this here and there's this big old void in the middle. And if you don't understand what your assumptions are or the assumptions are different from what they had going on and you try to apply that with your scenario or your situation, you end up in mm -hmm. a mess, just a flat out mess. Yeah. And you don't even know how to work your way out of it. And so I think it's really valuable and it can, this is time frame for you to have somebody who gives you an end to end system that actually allows you to be successful because you understand the assumptions that go with the situation that you're working through. So tell me a little bit more about how you feel about that experience level, needing to bring that into the deal. Because what we've noticed recently is that the, the experienced guy coming into the deal is signing on the loan, but that person often doesn't have the commitment to the project or the willingness to inject capital or the network they need to save a deal that's struggling. So who should have the experience? Because usually the most experienced guy is the one who signs on the most loans, but they don't raise money. They don't attend the meetings or they do. They don't really help with the asset management much. And then if the project starts struggling, they're not the ones injecting money. Now, I have to I have to say that's not 100% true because on my very, very first project, he did. If the project was in trouble, he injected money. He was at every meeting. He became very involved. His name was on that loan and he was committed. Anything that happened. And some of them are better than others. So how? Do, what is that experienced person look like because a lot of people are like oh this guy's signed on our loan he's done a thousand units and i'm thinking he's not going to help he's not going to step in when this thing struggles yeah so there are people that i call equity pirates and they come in because they have yeah <laughs> and they come and they just they i'm signing the loan and i'm taking all the equity that you thought you were getting thanks for finding the deal i'll see you when you get my distribution check or I'll see you at the closing table when we sit, when we end the deal. There's the equity pirates out there. They add no value other than I'm the thing between you and the capital. Cause I feel like every investor is trying to overcome four things, knowledge, mm -hmm. deal flow, experience, and capital. So if you have the knowledge, okay. then you can apply it against your deal or your lead flow so you can find deals. Once you have a good deal, then you can take it to the experience person to help you one, qualify the loan, two, make sure your business plan is tight. And then the last piece is taking that experienced partner to the bank so that the bank will give you the bigger part of the capital that's invested in the deal. So when we put a bow on all that, I believe that the experienced partner should be the one who actually is making sure that you're paying attention to the deal. For me, I've always been the one to inject the capital if something went wrong with my deal. I truly believe that it's, you could do a capital call, right? And I'll take that back. The first deal, I told our team, because I was an asset manager, I told our team that, hey, in March, this was March, I was like, hey, if we don't do something about this, we're going to have a problem before the end of the year. 
And they said, Jerome, stop thinking like an engineer. All of them. They were unanimous. Stop thinking like an engineer. You're making, you're catastrophizing things. It's not that big of a deal. And then I think it was November rolled around. It was like, they were like, hey, we're going to run out of money. We need to do a capital call from the part. You guys <laughs> said, you remember when we had the discussion in March? And I told you guys that we're going to get here and I'm not going to put any money in. I told you in March that that was going to happen. I'm not putting any money in. So that was the one exception to the rule. But every deal where like where I wrote the contract and mm -hmm. I brought the team in, if there was an issue, I was the person to inject capital. I do have a partner who has been willing to inject capital as well. And it's really interesting because everybody, we do joint ventures. We don't syndicate. Everybody on our team has been willing to write a check. I'll never forget, okay. and this is one of my biggest blunders. I said that our taxes <laughs> on a million-dollar property were going to be $1,000 for the year. I just left off a zero. What? I just left off a zero. <laughs> so That's that NASA crap that crashed because of the inches to millimeters. <laughs> fortunately, we Sorry. got a female, right? So I left off a zero, and we get to the end of the year, and it's like, oh, and then I look at the pro forma, I'm like, well, there's no way to fix this. Like taxes uh -oh. are straight to the end. Like it's coming out of profit. There's mm -hmm. nothing you can do about it. It's like the bank didn't say anything about it. None of the partners said anything about it. And so we're here, but I did the underwriting. So it's my fault. At the end of the, so I fixed it. And then eventually the property made enough money. We could pay each other back and whatever. But I, I think the person who's putting the deal together is the person that's primarily responsible for making sure that things happen. I will not partner with the equity pirate ever. I refuse to because yeah. I think the people who have balance sheet and capital want to overvalue it. And mm -hmm. it's great that if you can get people to do it. And in the beginning, I think there are a lot of people who are willing to do anything to get the capital because they don't know enough people to uh, invest in mm -hmm. deals or partner with them on deals. But the quicker you're able to get out of that space and get into a space where you are with people who actually value your contribution. And this is another thing that I've struggled with over the years is if you're partnering with people who don't want you to make money as the person who found the opportunity for them, you're partnering with the wrong people. Yeah. We learned early on in one of our deals that the person who brought in the most money had to sign on the loan because he owned more than 20% of the deal because he put in so much cash. And so in that situation, I felt like it was a little bit different. He wanted it to be fairly passive. It's joint venture, so it can't be totally passive, right? But he wanted it to be fairly passive. And he ended up having to sign on the loan. And he's like, yeah, I've never signed on a loan before. So he didn't know how to do his personal his financial statement or his balance sheet or any of that. So we had to walk him through that process so he could sign on basically the first loan that he did. So I think that was a little thing that we messed up because of the equity that we were planning on. We had to give him extra equity because he signed on the loan more than we were planning. And so that diluted the rest of us. So just these kinds of things that you just learn from experience, like who you're partnering with. He wasn't the wrong person to partner with. It's just we had never run into that problem before. You own more than 20% of a deal, you're signing on the loan. And they didn't really care basically that he wasn't doing much because he brought in so much capital. And anyway, so they want people on there. So sometimes the only way to learn these lessons is to do them. 
So I think it's interesting what you said. I, I think that YouTube and podcasts and books and all that are fantastic. People should consume as much of that as possible. But they're extremely disorganized with the presentation of the information. And like you said, there are holes there. And so where do you find when people should reach out to an expert? And how do they find a good teacher who's doing it because they're a good teacher and not because they're in it for the wrong reasons? I've talked to most of the well-known educators and they all seem to have a genuine interest in helping people do what they figured out how to do. Now, mm -hmm. with that said, you have to understand that you're running a business and the business is yours and nobody's going to care about your business more than you. And I think a lot of people feel yeah. like they are buying success when they participate in some of the mentorship programs. Mm -hmm. And that just is not ever going to deliver the results. Not true. Yeah, that's a really good point. I see that a lot. With that as context, the, the direct answer to your question of how do you find somebody, the right mentor, I think the first thing you do is you see if your values are aligned. You want to see if your values are aligned. Do you think about properties and residents the same way? If somebody calls the people tenants, I'd stop talking to them about partnership or doing a deal together just because the two words are very different for me. If somebody, I, I'll never forget the first deal I did. I had a partner, and this isn't so much education, but he was the property manager. I had a partner, and he said, yeah, we don't want those people there anyway. I was like, what do you mean those people? And those people are paying us rent. Like, they're our customers. And so for me, it just cut deep because we have people giving us money every month to live in a place that we own, and we don't want them there. I, I struggle with that because I like when people want to give me money. But I, I accept that all money is not good money. I, so values one, two... Do they actually have a process that you believe will work for you? Because there's a lot of different philosophies mm -hmm. out there. There's a lot of different approaches out there. One of the approaches is, hey, getting in an emerging market, ride the market up. Your property will go up by virtue of the tides rising, and then you can get out and make money, and it's almost guaranteed and it's safe. I have a mentor who I talked to yesterday who buys the most dilapidated property in the best zip code. And once he does that, it, he doesn't have anywhere to go but up. I just gotta get the place full and I'll make a bunch of money for me and my partners. That, that's a totally different strategy. And so when you understand what the strategy is, the overarching strategy, does it make sense to you? Do you understand the shortcomings with that strategy? And then I think the final piece is what does support look like? There are some people who go to really big universities. They just want to be a number. They don't want to feel like they have to go to class. They can figure it out on their own, et cetera. And there's other people who want to go to small groups, and they want to know that the professor knows their name, and they want to be able to pop in for office hours and talk to the professor instead of the TA or whatever. Well, depending on the program, you might end up in a space where you aren't talking to the people that you want to talk to. And just be clear about who's actually going to be the one that's helping you. I just think Some of it's bait and switch is what I will say. And I think that's the best way to describe it. Okay. Where you're coming in, you think you're working with this person, and then you find out you're working with somebody else. And if you're caught up on the person, 
then you're not going to be okay. If you're, but if you believe in the system, somebody else can actually facilitate the implementation of the system. And so just be really mindful of, well, where do you want to be? Do you want to be in a big community or do you want to be in a small community? Do you like the people who are there and what they're really focused on? I left corporate America because creating a return for shareholders was the last thing that I ever wanted to be focused on again. So just figure out what the overarching theme approach is for the people. Definitely. One thing I hear a lot, especially with people wanting to get involved on the business side of real estate, they want to do a joint venture. They don't want to be a limited partner. They want to be more hands-on. And when I ask them, what's your motivation behind doing this? And I hear over and over and over again, I want more passive income so I can spend more time with my family and retire early. And I wonder sometimes, I used to say the same thing, but then you, you realize it's a five to maybe a 10 year timeline before you can retire early. And that five to 10 years is a lot of hustle. Whether you're doing a real estate business like what we do, I chose to do that because that was my highest and best use of my trading time for money because I'm not an engineer. I didn't go to dental school. I don't have a professional degree. I was a marketer and I could make a lot more money in real estate actively than I could working as a marketer and just investing my extra money. So that's why I got into real estate. But I, I find so many engineers like you or or people with professional degrees who want to do this as a side hustle, even though they're probably making more money, at least reliable cash flow at their day job. And then they say they want more passive income and retire early. I don't think those two things really go together. So how, tell us about like your passive income goals and how that meshes with running an active real estate business, especially as a professional, how you manage the cash flow challenges of being self-employed when you realize like, oh, this isn't as passive as they thought. Because we've all sat on our apartment stoops and done the math and thought, oh man, this landlord's making bank. But then when we start doing it, we realize it's a high expense business and it's a lot of hands-on in the background. So tell me about your transition from that to realizing it's not that passive and then where you're going on the passive income journey yourself. Because you don't seem like the kind of guy who's going to retire. <laughs> yeah, I want to be work optional. That's okay. the goal for me. I think there will always be things where I want to be able to lend my talents to, but I don't want to have to do something in order to live. So I, I think what you offer, though, to set this question up is brilliant. I think there's so many people who are like, oh, I just don't want to work. Is that true? Or you just don't want to do what you're doing? Yeah. Now, once we go from there, then the next question is, oh, okay, how much money do you have to invest? Because I see a lot of people who think, oh, I'm going to invest $50,000 and then I can retire. It's like, <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You might invest $5 million and then you can retire, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe you invest $50,000 and you do a deal and that 50,000 turns into 100,000 and then you do another deal and that 100,000 turns into 200,000 and you do another deal and that two turns into four and then four into eight and then eight into 1.6 and then 1.6 into 3.2. Then maybe you retire. But I don't think, I think it's intentional that most people actually talk about what that actually really looks like, that ladder. And I don't think a lot of people are actually investing in the vehicles that are going to create income for them as quickly as possible. So mm -hmm. as an example, for a lot of folks, especially for people who aren't making six figures, 
this is not the path to early retirement unless you're just going to live on nothing. It's not. It's going to take too long and it's going to take a long time. I guess I can't say it's going to take too long. It's going to take a long time. There's some high value skills that you can investigate with that same 50000 or less that allow you to turn that 50000 that you invested into $500,000 worth of active income. Then you can take that active income, live on a fraction of it, and then use that to invest in the rest. But I like I think the allure of, oh, I'm a real estate investor with a portfolio and part of my income is passive and all we do is just whatever they want to position as is, for me, it's a joke because I see a lot of people out there who are like, oh, yeah, I quit my job and now I'm a real estate investor. And if they don't close a transaction, they can't actually pay their expenses because they need transaction fees. I need acquisition fees. I need this. I need that. So with that all said, I think it's really important for people to understand the vehicle that they're investing in and the potential returns. If you really dig into the performer, yeah, they may show you a 15% IRR and it doesn't matter what property type, what neighborhood, what market and what operator is, they're all going to show you the same 15%. I don't know how all the deals actually work out to that in the performer, but they, <laughs> but when you look at the cash on cash year to year, what you're actually going to see is 6% or 4%, maybe 10%. And it's all right. If I got 50,000 in on a 10% return, that means I made $5,000. It doesn't move the needle for anybody over the course of a year. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So what are we actually doing? What are we actually trying to get to? Oh, I'm just going to get a bunch of 50s together. Okay, but your money's locked up for five years, buddy. Maybe three, but more than likely it's five. And it could be seven if you're not careful. So if you have $50,000 and you invested it in something else, could you turn that into more than that in a shorter amount of time? And I think so many people are missing that. And so I'll try to put a bow on this with saying the cash flow quadrant is a beautiful thing. But I see so many people trying to run from the employee quadrant to the investor quadrant instead of running to the business owner quadrant where they actually have equity, they have carry, and they can get money from sweat and then take that money and then make that investor money. Because you, the more levers, the higher yeah. return is always going to be in the business owner category. And that is active. I don't know why we don't want to work. I don't get that. I, I think what you said about being work optional is really the key here because I'll share a quick example. The leader of one of the masterminds that I participate in, that I pay to participate in. <laughs> it's an entrepreneur mastermind, not real estate specific. And he owns the Hawaiian resort where we have our retreats. And he was telling us the story of this resort and building it in 2008. And then COVID happens because it's in Hawaii and everything shut down. And and he said he built a huge business that he sold to a large company, like a Fortune 200 company. And then took all that cash that he had and he never had to work again. He could have just done his thing, right? He got his active income. He made a great exit and he worked 80 hour weeks for when his kids were little. And it's just, it's part of that hustle and story. And he said, but instead of just retiring, he went and bought a resort <laughs> and it was writing checks out of his own pocket to keep it floating in 2008 and 2020. And so I came away from that experience thinking to myself, what can I learn? What can I learn from this? 
And it just feels like he didn't want to stop working. I don't want to stop working either. After about two days on the beach in Hawaii, after that mastermind retreat got over, I was like, okay, what are we going to do next? I was bored and I was ready to get back to work. So I think that the early retirement, we use that word a lot, but I found most people that's not even what they want. They want to have their basics covered by passive income. And then they want to go out and do something cool to, for active income. Or if they have enough, they usually end up in somewhere in philanthropy or or helping others who are coming up. So I think redefining entire retirement and redefining what you want to do with that passive income is really important because people who don't want to work are not going to be able to get the initial capital needed to be able to retire on passive income because it takes a lot. It takes a lot. Like, like you said, $50,000, $100,000, not going to do it. So to work as much as you need to be able to invest as much as you need to live a nice lifestyle on passive income, you've got to be about working. The people who don't want to work are not going to amass the wealth to retire. Like it just doesn't work. Like there, there's a certain amount of sacrifice that's necessary unless they win the lottery or something. You said something that really connected with me. And so everybody's chasing and I get on a soapbox. So I'll try to stay off the soapbox. I'll stand beside it right now. Here's the thing. Like the American dreams all about financial freedom. But everybody who actually gets there, they find out that this is the wrong F. People mm -hmm. need fulfillment. So you talked about philanthropy. And so we created this matrix framework, whatever you want to call it. And we believe that founders go through eight exits. The first exit for most people is leaving corporate America and they start their business. They're chief everything officer. And so they're doing all the things. Yeah. They traded their <laughs> nine to five in for a five to nine. 5 a.m. Yep. and 9 p.m. They're doing all this stuff. They're frustrated. They're overwhelmed, but they're working for themselves, so they feel good. The next mm -hmm. exit is when they hire people and things start getting done without them, right? They're But they're a taskmaster. You do this, you do this, you do this. But they're not responsible for everything, so that takes them to another level. And they got payroll now, so there's a, a, a need to make sure that they make money. The next level up is when they actually put somebody in place to manage those folks and they become a thought leader like you, right? They have podcasts, they're building social media, they might be doing conferences or masterminds or whatever else, but they're helping shape the industry. Then there comes a point where they get out of the day-to-day -day operations. And when they get out of the day-to-day -day operations, they actually have a company, right? They're a business owner. That's the B that they talk about on the cash flow quadrant. When you're out of the day to day, you own the thing. You're not the thing. You're not self-employed. Mm -hmm. That's where the magic really starts to happen because you can start thinking about your businesses and you shouldn't have multiple if you're still the one doing the thing until you can get out of it. But you can start thinking about your businesses as your products instead of whatever the business sells. But that is magical because now you're getting income without having to show up for that income because people are running it. I think that apartment buildings fit that mold really well where you can skip some of those steps outside of like deal acquisition. But once you mm -hmm. get the deal, if you have a property manager in place, they're managing the business, you're out of the day to day. And maybe you have a weekly or biweekly or monthly meeting, but that's your contribution. Then you can continue to build that portfolio or you can sell it and you get a check or a wire that exit. And so we call that exit six. It's the one where you get the big payday. And you can do a couple of things with that. You can go buy other stuff. You can spend it all. There's a whole lot of different options there, right? But the fact of the matter is you, if you do that enough, you'll end up 
being financially free. It's right there where people get trapped. They get stuck because they're like, okay, I don't need money. I'm work optional now. Who am I? And yep. what do I do now? Yeah. Oh, I want to spend more time with your kids. Okay. I, I think if you're a great parent, your kids are going to be adults and they're going to go do something else. And it's not going to be, look at you. I, I think the whole point is to make them productive and independent. Okay. So mm-hmm. I guess you can take care of your parents. They probably don't want to hang out with you either. And then it's, oh, I'll spend all my time with my spouse. Yeah, they like you, but I don't know if they like you that much. So what are you going to do to positively contribute to the world? Like, how are you going to actually make a difference? And you have your time back, and it's the most precious resource, so how do you allocate it? And I think this is the conundrum that so many people wrestle with when they actually get there. It's like the dog that caught the car. That, oh, Mm -hmm. I got the car. What do I do now? But most people aren't ready for that. And the people who haven't achieved financial freedom don't believe that it's actually a problem. The problem will exist when they get there, but it will. It's going to haunt them. And so you make it your sole purpose to get financially free only to find out that you're going to go do something else because you feel empty inside. Okay. That's so good. All right. Because we're grappling this right now. And my, my performance coach always starts out every call asking for some wins, right? But then he'll always ask me for my problems and then I'll tell him a problem. He'll say, that's a great problem to have. Then I'll tell him another problem. He says, look at how you're upgrading your problems. And it's, we do it a little tongue in cheek, but the whole kind of idea of graduating to better problems. And so my problems now are so much more fun than the problems that I used to have, but they're still problems. There's still stuff that we need to work through and new stuff that we weren't expecting. It's like, the irregular cash flow is really getting us right now. We got bills we need to pay and we just invested too much money and that thing that we thought was going to pay out didn't yet or it's delayed or whatever. Like that's a real struggle and I have to just remind myself, this is the problem that you wanted. This is the problem that you asked for. And there was no part of passive income where you thought you're going to have a regular monthly paycheck or biweekly paycheck that was reliable. And so just adjusting to that new lifestyle, that's what we're doing this year. And I feel like, oh, we're supposed to retire early and we're supposed to we're supposed to be philanthropic and be able to go places in our super luxury car or whatever. No, no. And so it's a constant process. And I like how you used the word before of the ladder, what this ladder actually looks like. It's usually just upgrading the higher quality problems, which again, sounds negative, but. There will be challenges. I think there's probably a piece missing from your business model to offset the boppiness, the lumpiness. Yep. You incorporated some type of subscription, right? Monthly recurring Mm -hmm. revenue would make your business a whole lot more enjoyable and a a whole lot less erratic. So, Mm -hmm. and that's what I see universally is you've got... You take your chunks and you allocate them however you're going to allocate them based on what you think should be done with large sums of money. But having some type of monthly drip is really, really, really valuable because we have monthly bills more often than not, right? It might not be a car payment, but there's probably some water or electricity somewhere that has to be paid or a phone bill or some other stuff like that. Yeah, large repairs like your roof of your RV getting blown off in a storm. 
Not that I would know anything Hopefully about that's that. Insurance. <laughs> yeah, it is. So having good insurance, having good stuff. And I think that these are the kinds of issues that some people, because I think the title of the show, Passive Income Adventures, we talk a lot about passive income and the adventures that you can go on and like dreaming about a different lifestyle, upgrading that lifestyle, and then believing you can do it and actually going out and doing it. But the point of that is not to make it look like it's easy or everyone, obviously everyone would do it if it was easy. We're trying to paint a real picture of what this looks like, how to smooth out the bumps in the business, how to recognize how many years it takes and how much money it takes and how much work it takes to get to the point and coming into it with huge expectations at the same time, realistic expectations. It's really difficult to balance those two things. So how do you do that in your life to say, I want to shoot big, but I also have to keep it real. Yeah. I, so I always get skeptical when it's always rainbows and unicorns. It can't be. There's always, there's a downside. There's a yin and yang for everything. And so if, things are just that great, you're probably overlooking something. If things are that bad, you're probably overlooking something. And so for me, it's like, how can I, as quickly as possible, figure out what the actual downside is, create the plan for whatever it is, and then execute that plan if it comes up. It's not doomsday. And I don't actually want to numb the lows because if you numb the lows, then the highs are numbed as well. So I want to experience the full range of things, but I do That's want good. to try to keep things in context because if you don't, you can make something really big that isn't big at all. And on the flip side, you can make something really small that's not that big of a deal, or it is a big deal. It's a big and deal. I think... I, the other piece that's super important, and so you've mentioned a couple of things. One, you're in a mastermind. Two, you've got a performance coach. Those people are supposed to keep us honest. Those people are supposed to force reflection. Those people are supposed to give us perspective. I'll never forget complaining about having $30,000 of mortgages and talking to one of my mentors, and he said, dude, that's my trash bill. You'll be all right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, the more people you hang out with, I, the more people I know who are actually living on their passive income, I'm not meeting the ones who literally go retire on a beach and they're happy with a Mai Tai in Mexico because they're not hanging out in masterminds. They're not coming to the networking events. They're not trying to get new relationships. They they really are on a beach with a Mai Tai. So I, I don't personally know anybody like that, but maybe they exist. I, I think that that's a unicorn story, but I don't know any of them, but I know a lot of people who are living full time on their passive income and they just have to go back and, and move the merry-go-round every so often because it starts to dry up or the market changes or some people will go and they'll do some great investing and it'll pay them really well for two, three, four years and then inflation hits or the market changes or their money comes back from an investment and then they realize they don't know anybody. Like, who am I going to put this back in? Because the guy who sold it, he's not, he's retired or whatever, and they haven't kept up to date. And so there is some maintenance that needs to be done. And, and I noticed with you, you're very active on social media, podcasting, you don't do syndications, you do joint ventures. So tell me about what that kind of maintenance looks like for you or your, in your active income and also some of your passive stuff that you have to keep. Just look at it every once in a while and just make sure that it's still healthy. Yeah, we look at every deal every month and we look at the valuation. And so one of the things that's really important for us is if our loan to value drops below 55%, we've got to do something. We either have to refinance it or we have to sell it. 
but trapped equity, we we don't enjoy trapped equity. So that is one thing. I think the other piece for us is active. I think you live on active income and you reinvest the passive. And I know there's other people who are like, oh, I'm going to invest on my active income and just live off my passive. Maybe I'm just not there yet. But it's for me, it's, if I don't expect to use the passive, then it can just continue to grow no different than if you put that money in the 401k, which is what most people's retirement plan is anyway. Right? They're going to put the money in 401k, they're going to wait till they're 65, and they're going to see what they have. If I take the passive money and I just reinvest the passive money, I don't think I changed anything. And with the active stuff, I've actually gotten to the place where I don't do anything active that I don't like doing. So mm-hmm. for me, it's, I get paid to do the things I love to do. And that mm-hmm. is what I want for people more than anything. If you're spending your time on something, I want you to love doing it. And I think there's a lot of people who don't think that they can do what they love doing. And so that's why they're trying so desperately to get the passive income. But I know for a fact, that I've always been compensated. I have been compensated better for doing things I love to do than for trudging through and grinding and doing the thing that looked like it was going to pay me the best. So I don't know if that is the best answer to the question. The other piece of this is just tax savings, right? Being active, being a real estate professional does so Mm -hmm. much for you on an active standpoint, because like the things that would be passive losses are active losses for me. And so now I get to keep more of that income, which the taxes in and of itself are everybody's biggest expense once they, whether they know it or not. Yeah. We have that conversation with a lot of our investors because we, we do syndicate through our equity and our debt fund. And most of our investors come to us asking this tax question, but they're both W2, like the both partners are W2 and they have to hear the hard answer of, there isn't a lot like you're capped out at a certain amount per year. You can carry that forward forever, but you can only take off a certain amount per year against your active income. And if they have to have some extra passive income to be able to take advantage of passive losses. And what do you say to your partners or to your joint venture investors that how do you help people maximize their taxes when they both still have day jobs? Oh, it's not time horizons are really important what we tell them is we're going to make a lot of money when we sell this. And so you want those when we sell it because you don't want to have to deal with paying taxes on the gain. Mm-hmm. And so if we double your money, there's real risk for you. And there's nothing worse than a phantom income. Yeah. And for the people out there who don't know what that is, phantom income is when you report that you made a profit, but no money went in your bank account. Right. There's nothing worse than that. And so we, we do everything we can one to make sure that that doesn't happen. But two, we want people to work with tax professionals who are going to make sure that we get to the exit, that they've got banked losses to offset the income that was created. That's the key. I think having a plan for when most of the gains are coming in, I'm not seeing a lot of tax savings on a year to year basis because those are capped out, but then other tools like sometimes we'll sell it on seller financing so we can spread that profit out. Sometimes we will reinvest it in something with a, with depreciation because I'm a real estate professional, so we can take 
take full advantage of that. But the 1031 exchange, I don't personally love it as a real estate professional, but as a W-2 guy, I think it's a valuable tool because they can't do the the depreciation. So just being able to customize that and have realistic expectations of what those tax savings actually look. And we have some investors who invest in debt projects where they're just getting interest income, taxes, ordinary income, and they're using the profits from the ordinary income to pay their taxes on their W-2. They're like, I'm not really... I'm not really getting a tax savings here, but I'm making more money so that I can pay my high taxes. And so everybody's situation is different. But I think for me and for you, tax savings is huge, but it's a tough, it's a tough thing to tell some investors like, it's not going to be as great if both people are W-2. Let's be real though. If they're not active in it, why should they get the benefit? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I've never thought about it like that before. Their money's doing the work. They're not doing the work. They're not changing their time. I I don't know. But if that's that important to them, they can go. There's a really nice section in the tax code on the gas investment. Go do that. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is like my highest and best use of, of trading my time for money was as a real estate entrepreneur. But a lot of our investors are high paid professionals, the Silicon Valley, Amazon, Meta type of employee, and maybe the partner is working in a similar type of job. They're well paid. They're not going to leave that job to go start a syndication business. So what would you tell that person who, hey, I want to diversify into real estate. I'm getting clobbered on taxes because we're high income and I want to retire in five to 10 years. That's the number one thing we hear over and over again, two high paid professionals, W-2. They want to retire early and they're getting clobbered on taxes. So how did you how do you help how do you help your team navigate that? You and I navigated it by just getting out of the get out of the game of becoming real estate professionals. Yeah. But what you're not a CPA, but what do we tell people? Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a couple of different things. And so I ask a lot of questions. And so the first question is why do you want to retire? And they're going to say I don't like my job or I worked too much or, or I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. Okay, great. What do you want to do if this is the last question? I want to sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais. Okay. Have you ever done that for yeah. one week? No, I'm not because I work so much. Okay. Why don't you go do that for 10 days and then come back and tell me if that's truly what you want? And inevitably, there's but so many Mai Tais you can drink, right? They move off of that. And so then the question becomes, what do you actually want to do? Like, why do you want free time? And then my goal would be more often than not to help them move into doing the thing that they actually believe that they want to do. The, the real estate isn't solving the problem. And I don't think anybody should become a real estate professional or a real estate entrepreneur if they're not passionate about the business of real estate. Like that is super important because it's hard. I don't care what any educator, podcaster, or TV show tells you. It's hard for the people who think that they can just show up and do anything. It's almost like saying, hey, I'm an MMA fighter. And uh, Emma, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. So uh, I'm looking for a $500,000 investment. I'm, I'm going to do my first MMA fight. It's a title bout with Conor McGregor. Now, I've listened to podcasts, I've read a few books, <laughs> and I haven't actually worked out with anybody or anything like that. But he's smaller than me, and I play college football. So 
what I need, I'm going to send you the wire instructions. I need you to wire me the money so that I can get started in this business of MMA fighting. And if I win, I'll send you 15% on your money. But if I lose all of your money, yeah. what email should I send? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm either going to hang up the phone or give you a fake email. <laughs> and But that's what people don't get. We And, and this brings our conversation full circle. The hardest deal you're going to do is the first few deals. And it is going to be like fighting a world champion. It's going to be like fighting a world champion. And if you don't have the right support, if you don't have somebody in your corner, if you don't have the the chops to get hit in the face with the $9,000 delta on what you thought the tax bill was going to be, if you're not ready to do the things that you have to do in order to make the thing work, you're going to get your butt kicked. And not only are you going to get your butt kicked, but you're going to lose all the money that, from the people that put the money in the deal. And stop disrespecting the people and just thinking you're going to show up because you have success over here and be successful with this thing. It is different, and it is hard. And I think there's a lot of people who want you to believe it's not hard so that you write them a thirty to $100,000 check to get into their education program, and you believe it'll work for them, it'll work for me. It works for you if you work and you have the right guidance. And you can have, you have the stamina to stay in the game long enough for it to work. And that's the stuff that nobody will tell you. I don't have anything to sell you. So I'll tell you all the things because I've been through it. But at the end of the day, the solution for the person is to do the work that they want to do. The work they're truly passionate about. Solving the problem that they don't want anybody else to experience on the face of the planet. Do that work. And then from that work, you will be in a really great position, one, from an earning standpoint, but two, you're spending the time the way you want to. Then the other stuff, the passive income, is icing. From my perspective, that is the game. So now that we got all of the keeping it real stuff out of the way, <laughs> I feel like we may have dampened a little bit of enthusiasm there. And I obviously am very passionate about passive income. It it has consumed my life for the last five years, and now I'm passionate about helping other people reach that goal so they can really dive deep into themselves and think, what is it that they really want to be doing? Their highest value, not just for the money, but also just in life. So what is that for you? What are you working on right now? What are some of your passive income dreams, adventures? Inspire us for a minute. Yeah. So what's really cool for us is we get involved in a lot of businesses. And you may think your multifamily investment is a piece of real estate, but it's truly a business. It's got a P&L. And so our goal is to help create more millionaires. When we first became accredited investors, it was like, oh, this is cool. And then it was like all of the communities were, oh, this is only for seven figure or this is only for accredited investors. And if you're not an accredited investor, good luck figuring it out. And it's like, oh, if somebody's running a business and we can help them double their revenue, then they'll be able to take more home. And then maybe they can qualify by income. And then if they take some of that money mm -hmm. and invest it in assets that have equity in them, maybe we can help them be qualified by assets. And so the goal for us is just to help create more and more folks who are accredited investors and help them get access to the investments that are creating wealth and the true passive income. It's one thing to buy a piece of real estate that's really difficult to operate and you got to spend a whole lot of time on it. It's another thing to buy something that's fully renovated, occupied, 
with people who pay before the first of the month and like the stuff that most people dream of when they get into the business. But in order to get access to that stuff, it's usually reserved for the people who have more net worth or more income. And so our goal is just Mm -hmm. to do that. We think by doing that, we will eliminate a lot of suffering. And when those folks attain that type of wealth, then they'll be free to work on the thing that I think they were that all of us are placed here. I think we're all placed here with the mission to go out and accomplish and achieve. And a lot of us get distracted by, oh, this pays me well. And the more people we can free to do the work that they were placed here to do, I think it's better off for everybody. That That is beautiful. And it, it lines up similarly with what drives me as well, because you can't really retire on passive income unless you have a couple million dollars invested. And so thereby you would be accredited, thereby you're a millionaire. And I feel like you said, freeing people up to do what they were put here to do. And you've obviously found that space for yourself. Just listening to you talk today, I'm feeling like you, I don't want to say you have it all figured out because I think that there are some people who think that I have it all figured out, but a lot of days it's a train wreck. So I don't want to say you have it all figured out. But it sounds like you have your direction really clear and your focus really clear. Sometimes getting there can be messy, but I love that you have that focus. Yeah, I think that being directionally correct is more important than knowing exactly the answer. And I think so many people miss that. They're scared. Okay, that's the title. They don't know this address in California. So if I'm in North Carolina, I'm going to head to California. I just need to start heading west. And... The closer I get to California, yes. the more important <laughs> it is on where I'm going because it's northern or southern or central. I, do I need to go to Bay Area? Do I need to go to yes. LA? Do I need to go to Sacramento? I don't know. But I, what I do know is at the pace that I'm going, I just need to start heading west. And the faster that people start heading west, the more will be revealed to them. And the more clear they will seem and uh, the more rewards they'll get. And the more they'll realize that they don't need as many answers as they think they need. That, yes. And everybody knows that. Everybody can relate to that because we've all, we just drove across country, right? We started in California and we drove to Florida. And when we were first going, we were going to stay with a family member and we didn't know their exact address because even though we had it, we don't know, have they moved? It's been a couple of years since we shared that information. And so we just put Florida into the GPS. And as we got closer, we got a hold of her and she was said, oh, she gave us the city that she was in. And then as we got closer, we're like, hey, what's your actual address? Because this is what we have and we're not sure if you still are. She says, oh yeah, that's right. And so we put that in and we kept driving until we ended up in her driveway. But we didn't know where we were going exactly when we left California. Sometimes you need more consistency than precision at the beginning. Just get in a car, start driving. Yeah, I, that's a beautiful analogy and so relatable. You guys did it. All right. Yeah, we're here. It's super hot and humid. We're from Texas and we lived in Salt Lake for five years. And I already, I, my body's just reminding itself, oh, you do know how to sweat. <laughs> it's been very, very humid and hot, but it's it just goes to show you can get used to anything if you do it long enough. Because I remember feeling this way when we first moved to Texas and it ended up okay. Nobody died. So what are you working on right now? And just talk a little bit about, to just talk to the listener for a minute about why somebody should reach out to you after the show. I try and ask everybody this. What is the true value of listening to a podcast like this, getting information? Yes. 
but the network is more important. So talk to our listener for a minute and uh, let them know what you're up to and, and what you would love to talk about after the show. Yeah. And so I'm moving to the place where I'm the guy that helps people figure out what's next. And so we talked about a bunch of different exits early on in the show. And so each time you get to one of those exits, it requires a different version of you. And a lot of times the mission changes when you get to the bigger ones, like when you get to the large financial windfalls. And so if you're struggling, you don't know what's next or you're trying to figure out what's next and or though you've got the money and you're looking for fulfillment, then you should reach out because I see a lot of really bad things happen to people who don't have the proper support when they're struggling with their loss of identity or they're questioning what their purpose is. And that work for me has become a true passion project, mainly because those folks who are struggling with it don't have a diagnosis. Like you're not going to go to a psychiatrist and they say, oh, you've got this thing. What we've called it is a founder's exit paradox. It's a bunch of feelings where you're like, oh man, everything should be great. Everybody on the outside is looking at this and they're like, they think this is amazing. And on the inside, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Or I'm struggling or I got lumpy income and I don't have cash. I'm not liquid right now. There's so many things that we go through and we just assume that we can't talk to anybody about it or nobody gets us or we're the only one going through it. And so we suffer in silence and we struggle. But that's just not true. People just aren't talking about it openly. And so part of my goal is to help spread the word about this phenomenon that's happening so that we don't have really great people implode. And so the way to do that is reach out to us yes. exitparadox.com. Exitparadox.com. I've had many instances like this in my life and I found that the more open I was about it and the more vulnerable I was about it, the better results I had. And just to give a, a quick example, it, it's nothing, I've never really talked about this, but by my religious journey, my gospel journey, and when I started to wonder about that, and I felt like I wasn't allowed to go to church anymore because you had to be this big believer to go to church. And when I had that moment, I was at the health club and there was somebody there working out who was very, very out of shape. And I looked over there and I thought, would I ever tell that person who's so out of shape that they shouldn't come to the gym? I was like, I, I'm obviously out of shape right now with religion and with God and my relationship with God. And if I want that in my life, and I still did, I was very sad at that loss. And so I started going back to church. I never really left, but I started just being more committed and not so confused. And then I started talking about it. I'd raise my hand in a Sunday school class or we'd be chatting about it in the hallway or we'd be talking about my friends outside of church about what I was going through. And it over and over, probably 50% plus of the people who either had been through the same thing or were going through the same thing. And we were able to give each other the most beautiful advice and help and support. And I feel like it's the same way. If I'm trying to cover up like, oh, we're living the passive income lifestyle. Technically, we are. Our passive income covers our expenses, but there's a lumpy income. I love that. So I feel, I'm finding that the more transparent I am about that, the more people are reaching out and saying, here's what we did when we were in that situation, because we're a couple years ahead of you. And it has been so freeing to just confide and then be vulnerable about it, because I've just learned that that's how you get stuff done. Really, because if it's about the network, you can't isolate your network out of your problems. You, you have to involve them or they're not ever going to know how we can help each other. And nobody can help you if they don't know you need help. Exactly. 
So I think I'm gonna reach out to you as well because I'm gonna you start. I'm gonna start using that term. You need to TM that one, the lumpy income, because that's definitely our biggest, our best, highest quality problem that we're having right now. So. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jerome. I really appreciate you taking your time and just talking to my listeners and who are now part of your network. So please reach out to Jerome after the show and enjoy this network that you're creating by learning and meeting all these people through YouTube and podcasting. Don't be a stranger. Thank you. This was awesome. Okay, there was a lot in there for me to unpack. And especially one thing I love about podcasting is the opportunity to have private conversations before and after the show. And Jerome definitely delivered. If you are looking for some guidance in your business and in your life and financial plan, I got a little coaching session after the episode there and really feel he's delivering what he says he's going to deliver. So be sure to reach out to Jerome afterwards. Just enjoy having him in your network. Even if you're not going to have him as a coach, he's a very giving person with his time, puts out great social media content, and I'm sure he would love to hear from you. That's what we're doing here on this podcast. We are building networks. We're not just delivering information. So please reach out after the show. would love to see you at our weekly club meeting. At, you can get more information on that club meeting at riseclubcapital.com. It's a joint venture club. So if you want to be a little bit more of a hands-on investor, we do deals in there and it's the real thing. It's the war room. We're sitting in there deciding if we want to do deals together or not and going through the very detailed due diligence process on these deals. And it's just a really great way for you to either break into the business or to pivot a little bit and get into something that maybe is a little bit different than what you've done before. Just trying to make the barrier of entry lower for uh, potential investors. If you want to be more hands-off, which most of our fund uh, investors, that's what they're looking for, working full-time jobs. That's what most of our fund investors are looking for, having full-time jobs, doing what they do, making good money at what they're good at, and just looking for an opportunity to diversify into real estate investing without having to get a side hustle or a new job. You can get more information at risecapitalinvestments.co. We've got regular webinars, LinkedIn Lives, and events you can attend, uh, a book that you can download so you can learn all the terms and, and the things that you need to be able to make good decisions. Schedule a call so that we can get on and answer any questions that you have and walk you through the process, especially if it's your first time. Experienced investors often, they're like, send me your documents, read over, decide if they want to invest, and fill everything out and get going because they've been through this a few times. But we recognize that if it's your first time investing in, in something like a fund or like a real estate deal where you are learning how to read all the documents, learning how to read all the pro formas and all that. We're here to help you walk you through that process. So don't hesitate to reach out. It's my favorite part of what we do is talking to you after these episodes are over and learning more about you and finding out what you want on your own passive income adventure. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next time.